It's Thursday, December 1st, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, senior writer the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, Lee, let's jump into your article um, in California on your mind uh, this week. Uh, you write about the success of the Kairos Charter School in Vacaville, California, where math and language arts proficiency in uh, all demographics has outpaced traditional counterparts. Um, you spoke with Kairos' co-founder and executive director, Jared Austin. Lee, what is the secret to their success? Uh, well, Jonathan, um, yeah, well, happy happy uh, late Thanksgiving to you fellows. Happy holiday season. Um, Jonathan, yeah, I, I had a chance to speak with um, the superintendent for a charter school up in Vacaville, California, relatively rural part of California. And it offers, um, you know, it offers a remarkable glimpse of hope for California schools in the following sense. Um, you know, only one in four of our kids are proficient in math or science or English language arts. Um, so essentially, we are failing three out of four kids in our public schools, uh, despite the fact that the state is now spending half a million dollars per year on average in a classroom. Um, and the Cairo School is a charter school that's only been around, you know, since the 2014-15 academic year. Um, they are delivering learning performance outcomes measured in terms of proficiency on on, uh, on test scores. That's you know 40 to 50 percent higher than in uh, than in traditional local schools, either at the either at the at statewide level or in the traditional schools in that in that city. And it's a school of 650 kids. The school is so popular, they now have a wait list of 1,000 kids. So families understand where the quality education is, and they're banging on their door to get in. And interestingly enough, this is a very efficiently run school with the funds they receive from the state and gifts they've received. They've saved millions of dollars, and they purchased 27 acres. They're building a uh, they're building two additional campuses on those 27 acres uh, to accommodate that wait list of a thousand people. Um, and you know, one reason they spend less is because they have a tiny administrative staff. It's just it's just six people, and the superintendent um, uh, the superintendent I spoke with is not just superintendent, but he's also the facilities manager and he's the technology center center management man, uh, manager. And, you know, they're able to run a, the in-person school as well as a home learning enrichment campus that they have that they run remotely with just uh, just six kids. Uh, I'm sorry, just, just, six, just, just six administrators. Um, and, you know, really the sad part of this is that when charters were first implemented, you know, 30, 40 plus years ago, the whole idea was that charters were supposed to be uh, innovation centers that tried out new ideas um, and that traditional schools would then borrow from, would learn from. And that simply hasn't happened. 
And so here we have a great example of the school that's just crushing it. Um, if we could replicate their level of learning outcome success, California would jump from being one of the worst states in the country for learning outcomes up to perhaps one of the top two states, up, up, up on par with Massachusetts, which is the highest performing state. But sadly, you know, politicians, state politicians, local politicians continue to fight charter schools because they take away dollars and resources from, from poorly performing traditional schools. Uh, and a couple of years ago, Assembly Bill 1505 was signed into law by, uh, by Governor Newsom. And that law has really become the death for charter schools because that bill allows a school board the right to reject a proposal for a new charter school if it will have a negative impact, a negative fiscal impact on any of the local traditional schools. So ironically, what that means is that if you have if you have parents and people who want to run a charter school in a school district with a horribly performing traditional school where kids are just stuck, that school board is going to say no because because they because the law allows them to prevent competition. It allows them to protect that failing school. And sadly, I suspect that if you went around the state and asked state and local politicians, hey, do you use do your kids use the local public schools? I'm guessing more often than not, the, the answer is going to be no. So we can make schools remarkably better. The the the, the performance is there. And the, and the Cairo School is willing to teach other schools how they succeed. And what we're doing at the state level is just horrendously wrong. It's impacting our kids so negatively because they are preventing success from occurring because they want to continue to curry the political favor of teachers unions and other special interest groups that are threatened by charter schools and their expansion. Yeah, Lee, it's interesting. Uh, that bill you mentioned, AB 1505, was signed in, 20, in 2019, and uh, it was sold at the time as a compromise. And if you actually go back and look at the bill signing ceremony, uh, you had two would-be combatants standing up with Governor Newsom when he signed it, and that would be the California Teachers Association and the California Charter Schools Association. Uh, we can talk all day about what CTA, the Teachers Association, brings to the table in terms of weapons, if you will, in politics. They can just spend money thanks to teachers' dues, which they do on candidates, which they do on ballot initiatives, and just kind of flexing their 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 muscle and their presence. But Lee, the question is, if you're the California Charter School Association, what do you have to fight with? Remember, it's that great line that uh, Stalin had when he was told that uh, the Vatican was upset with him. What do you say? How many, how many, um, how many troops does the Pope have? Uh, so the question would be, Lee, what do charter school advocates have to fight with in California? Yeah, Bill, absolutely right. Uh, ironically, there was that signing ceremony where the Charter Schools Association have representation there, right. and we're standing side by side with the CTA. And uh, you know, the analogy I would I would give is that uh, you know there essentially was a gun to their head because yeah. this was yeah this, this was built as a compromise, and I suspect what happened is that the charter school folks thought this is about as good as we can ever hope for. And there are, a lot, there are a lot of alternatives out there that could be worse. And those alternatives were ones in which it, that would make it easier to shut down existing charter schools. So AB 1505 is less onerous on existing schools, but makes it very, very difficult to, to start new charters. And, um, you know, I had my Hoover RA track the uh, track 
charter school movement in the last few years. And, you know, the number of charter schools operating in California today is less than it was five years ago. So, you know, we aren't getting entry of new charter schools. The bill is having the effect that it was intended to have, which is to prevent future competition from charters. And AB 1505, I think, was perceived as something that was uh, about as good as they can do. They, they simply have no, polit- you know, really no political influence. They're non-starters. So I think this was one of the cases of, uh, thank you, sir, may I have another? Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the fiscal side of this because uh, that bill does allow uh, school districts to cut back when they see uh, financial hardship to deny applications if they think it's a negative fiscal impact. This is going to be a repeating theme in the first half of 2023, Lee and Jonathan, California having to make do with less because last I checked, the state's running about a $25 billion deficit. And if you look at the economy right now and inflation and capital gains, it's not getting any better. So I suspect you're going to hear this course repeatedly from the education establishment in California that we just don't have enough money to go around. And, you know, sorry, charter schools out of luck. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and um, and that's that that's a battle cry from the unions and um, and the broader political education establishment, which is that oh gosh, you know we're having to you know we're having to do more with less. The simple fact is that in the current state budget, the average classroom K through twelve in traditional public schools is operating at a $500,000 budget per classroom. Five, for, a, for, a half, for half a million bucks, we should be able to deliver a remarkably high quality education. And yet three out of four kids are failing. And Bill, it's just gonna get worse as you pointed out because we've gone from, what, what, did, what did the, uh, the legislative analyst office estimate? Back in May, they were estimating a $97 billion, <clears throat> billion dollar surplus. Yes. And Kelsa Prees with the stock market falling, we're now down to a $25 billion deficit. Yeah, the phrase is called budget whiplash. <laughs> yeah, it's a de- deja vu all over again. California continues to ride the revenue roller coaster. We were riding sky high with game show Gavin handing out fistfuls of dollars back not, not so long ago. And now the uh, the roller coaster cart is heading down at an accelerating rate. Gentlemen, let's stay on the education front. Um, Some 48,000 University of California graduate student instructors and research assistants uh, represented by the United Auto Workers have been on strike since November 14th. Uh, Their gripe, their wages are not keeping pace with the cost of living in California. Uh, This is what Misha Lerner, a graduate student in the Department of Slavic Language and Literatures uh, at UC Berkeley, wrote in a recent blog at Verso, uh, quote, the history of that strike can be traced back to 2019 when students at UC Santa Cruz initiated a wildcat strike, which spread throughout much of the UC system. The central demand of this movement was a complete reconceptualization of graduate student compensation instead of a wage system based based on a set salary with small percentage-based salary increases negotiated with the UC every four years. The workers of Santa Cruz proposed a new system tying wages to the cost of housing in which UC campuses are located. Uh, Lerner adds, in our current negotiations with the UC, the 2019 workers' demand has been reformulated to stipulate the graduate student employees have their salaries raised to 54000 per annum with subsequent yearly wage increases tied to the cost of housing. Uh, unquote. Postdoc scholars and researchers have now reached a tentative agreement, so the number of people on strike has gone down. Uh, but gentlemen, is this symptomatic of a larger problem than California's unaffordable living? Uh, Time magazine indicates that university systems nationwide have recently faced enormous financial pressures and funding cuts. Uh, there are less full-time faculty and much more employees, but less job security and lower pay. Uh, Lee, what do you think are the underlying conditions that have led to the strike, and how has Governor 
Newsom positioned himself on the on this uh, on this particular issue, and, and it's maybe speak to it from your perspective at a, a University of California school. Yeah, yeah, Jonathan. Um, yeah, I'm living with, with as faculty inside the UC system. I'm, li I'm living it with it right now. Uh, you know, thankfully, I, uh, I I thank my lucky stars every day. Uh, my teaching assistant um, has chosen to continue to perform his teaching duties. Uh, you know, during the period of the strike, so I'm very thankful. Uh, very thankful for that. Um, and uh, you know, Jonathan, it's interesting to note. Um, you know, the the grad students, and this also involves postdoctoral uh, researchers. So these are these are people who have received a PhD or some type of advanced doctoral degree, and who are continuing their education um, as what are called postdoctoral fellows. Um, the strike, I believe, as far as I know, has been settled for the postdoctoral folks. Uh, that's about yeah. a quarter of the people that are um, that are uh, that were involved in the strike. Um, right now, Jonathan, the, um, the kind of the modal person, the modal graduate student that's involved in the strike is is the fellow you just mentioned, um, who's a PhD candidate in Slavic languages and history, and you know they're asking for fifty four thousand dollars a year. Um, and I, I, as faculty, I agree that stipends sh should be higher for, for these students. Um, but on the other hand, for a fellow in Slavic languages and history, uh, that $54,000, um, along with the benefits that come with that, they're also asking for subsidized childcare and subsidized housing and uh, a lot of other things. Um, that package will be worth more, almost certainly, than what this fellow will be able to achieve when he finishes his PhD. Um, right. The UC system ha has kind of a very strange way of allocating money. Economics is a, is, is a, is a field where um, there's a lot of demand for our PhD students. Um, Slavic languages, there's not a lot of demand for their students. Um, they all receive the same stipend. It's right now it's twenty two thousand dollars a year. Um, and if you're living in um, in Berkeley or in Los Angeles, UCLA or UC San Diego, you're probably spending more than half that stipend on rent. So those things, um, those issues uh, should be addressed. And uh, interestingly enough, um, great timing. I had dinner last night with some of our economics PhD students, one of whom is pretty involved in the strike. And um, and Jonathan, Bill, um, you know, if you know, Jonathan, you mentioned United Auto Workers, <laughs> United <laughs> Auto Workers Union is representing um, Ph.D. students and postdoctoral researchers. And this happened. This probably happened. This first happened about you know eight or nine years ago, I believe. And so, you know, you're kind of asking yourself, well, why is the UAW representing these people? Um, it's because they have no one else left to represent. The domestic auto industry is essentially right. collapsed. Um, and the UAW is sitting there, you know, twiddling their thumbs and trying to say, hey, who can we unionize next? Um, and someone came up with a bright idea of, hey, what about graduate students? Let's go out to the University of California. Um, and the one fellow I spoke with uh, who is involved with the strike pretty closely told me, uh, the following story, I said, well, um, you know, who from the UAW is in there negotiating with the Board of Regents? Um, and he said, well, it's these graduate students, just the guy from Berkeley, and then there's a history PhD student from UCLA. And I said, well, what about these seasoned, you know, tough negotiators from the UAW? And he said, nope, <laughs> it's, it's these grad students that have absolutely sort of no idea what they're doing as far as being, a, as far as negotiating a labor contract. 
Um, so you know, it's almost uh, it's it's very it's it's very ironic that that the that the union um, is taking dues from these kids, and uh, you know, I think they're getting some advice from UAW attorneys when it comes to legal when it comes to legal issues. But they're really not getting um, much support whatsoever. Um, right. And from that standpoint, I think it's uh, I think it's very sad. So, Jonathan, you asked, where's Governor Newsom in this? And the answer is he is staying the heck away. You ask why. And well, it's pretty simple. I think, first of all, he does not want to run afoul of a union. Uh, the UAW, as Lee mentioned. Secondly, I don't think he wants to get involved in negotiations within UC because this gets back to the budget because he's going to have a, a headache come January with his budget and telling the UC it's going to have to make do with less as well. So I think for him optically to, on the one hand, be giving raises to UC workers then have to take away money in January, probably is not where he want to go. But Lee, here's what I'm curious about. There's a Peace and Time magazine that went to this. Let me read to you the uh, the pull quote from it. Quote, the strike is shunning a spotlight on a longstanding problem within higher education. Today, tenured full-time faculty members make up a smaller percentage of university employees than they did 50 years ago, in part due to financial pressures facing universities amid fu- funding cuts. The proportion of other university employees who receive less job security and lower pay has grown tremendously. So here we have, Lee, I think kind of a question about the structure of UC systems in terms of, you know, full-time employees versus contract workers, I guess you would say. But then and secondly, the question, Lee, of, of, of Union of Labor getting its nose under the tent and trying to expand membership. So you're inside UCLA. Do you see the same kind of thing going on? Uh, yeah, Bill, absolutely. Um, universities have become expensive over time. Um, and there's an awful lot more administrative staff. And we were just talking about how this charter school in, um, in Vacaville has six administrators and they run they run essentially two campuses with those six administrators. Um I mean, when I look at UCLA in the 20, you know, in the 20, almost 23 years I've been there, um, administration has grown enormously, uh, particularly senior levels. I mean, I can't, you know, every UC campus has a chancellor, uh, so essentially a CEO. And then there are, uh, you know, back in the day, there used to be a handful of vice chancellors. Now we have a vice chancellor for literally everything, including a vice chancellor for diversity and equity, equity and inclusion, um, which, uh, you know, in my opinion, has been money that has that is not returning much of an in, much of a return on investment, if, if any, if any at all. So what universities are doing are they are turning to um, you know part time academics. These are um, people with PhDs who have not been able to locate a tenure track job. Uh, and, you know, sometimes they're called itinerant faculty. They tend to teach a lot of courses, right. sometimes in multiple campuses. And, um, you know, they're, they're less costly than our full-time faculty, certainly no doubt about that. Um, and if, you know, if, if, if John Q. Public was to look at the UC system, I think the first thing they would probably, they would probably say is, you know, why do we have so many faculty in areas, uh, in fields of inquiry where there's just not all that much demand? So we talked about Slavic languages. Um, you know, you can go down the list of departments at U- University of California campuses where right. kids just aren't, you know, they're not taking those courses. They're not majoring in those in those areas. Um, I mean, within economics, we have 42 full-time faculty. Uh, we have about 4,000 or 5,000 students in the major. Um, so we're pretty efficient from that standpoint, but there are departments that are um, a quarter or even 20% of our size that have about the same number of faculty. 
So there's a lot of efficiency gains that could be had, but there's no doubt the universities are economizing by hiring part-time faculty. And Bill, you know, I, I get asked all the time by um, by parents and pr- prospective students, hey, you know, where where should I go to college and university? And, uh, you know, what, 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 would UCLA be the right place for me? Or would the University of Texas be the right place for me? And I'm going to take all these classes from famous faculty. Well, at the end of the day, they're going to take classes from a lot of part-time faculty. Um, and that's something that parents and students just don't know before they make these choices. So Lee, I'm going to throw an idea out at you, just spitballing here. Um, Governor Newsom begins his second term in January. Uh, I have a hunch that he is kind of bored with his job in this regard and that he wants to run for president. That's kind of blocked until Joe Biden makes up his mind. He survived the recall. Um, He needs issues to glom onto besides obviously the budget. Why not delve into the UC in two regards, Lee? Number one is just how it is run in terms of the operating expenses, the administration that you referenced, the bureaucracy, just the sheer overhead of it all, which ties to a really uncomfortable issue, Lee, which is going to be the pension system for the UCs, just a flood of people leaving in their 50s and 60s and just latching on to pensions and just driving up the cost of place. But then secondly, revisiting the core mission of UCs, which is to what? Graduate people ready to compete in the economy. This is the seeds of Stanford University back in the 1890s with old man Stanford, Leland Stanford, going to Ivy League schools and being horrified, finding, you know, people in the 1880s graduating from Harvard with, you know, majors in classical Greek and Stanford, a businessman coming to the conclusion, what is that person going to do in the world? So if you walk around this old Stanford buildings, you see things like chemistry and agriculture on them. He's looking for very practical applications for students. I think, Lee, maybe this UC system has to address the same thing because California suffers each year in various shortages, be it educators, be it technology, nurses, and so forth. So maybe it's a good time for the governor. Now, I hate to suggest this to him because he'll want to drop a task force. And you and I have lamented many times with this podcast, the inefficiency of task forces. But it would seem, Lee, a very timely thing to do to start investigating what the UCs are actually doing. Uh, yeah, Bill, absolutely. Um, and that could include the, uh, you know, the Cal State system, uh, the Cal State system as well. Um, what was it, Bill? Back, what was it, 1960 or so? Um Gosh, now I'm going to forget the exact name for it, but was it the uh, California's higher education, um, California implemented a higher education program in which it was going to be, what was the top 10% of kids graduating from high school would be eligible for admission into the UC. And the whole idea was create a university system with with great thinkers, um, great faculty, fantastic students, and then they would come out of those universities and be able to help build the California of tomorrow. Um, And within that mission, um, within that mission, there's really, I think, a commitment that those dollars be be spent wisely. And we produce citizens who can think critically and who are prepared to to take on those challenges. Um, And (laughs) As a taxpayer, when you you know walking into Starbucks and finding out that the manager is um, is a philosophy graduate from UC UC Davis, which I I, I found out the other day when I walked in uh, to get a coffee, uh, uh, that that you say, well, oh gosh, do you you know you don't really need a college degree to to manage to manage the local Starbucks. So, Bill, yeah, I, there, there's 
Yeah, I mean, a, a, as a person within that system, um, there's a lot of good. There are an awful lot of remarkable faculty within the University of California system. Um, but there's no doubt it could be run better. And um, yeah, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what Newsom does with that. The, uh, the system does receive a much smaller share of public of, of uh, state funding than it did 40 years ago. So there's a lot of the funding is coming from other sources. Um, but it uh, it's it, the system, let me just say it this way, the system could could be so much better and could serve so many more kids. Um, you know, there are many deserving kids who are who, are, who who should be going to the UC, but who are getting rejected. Um, so there's a lot of improvement. Right. So you're referencing, Lee, the uh, California Master Plan for Higher Education, which yeah, came out. Exactly. It came out in 1960, and that's the year I was born. So that tells me that plan is old. Uh, but this gets very complicated the more we just kind of talk this out among the three of us and that, okay, we should revisit really the core mission of the UC and what they're doing in terms of preparing a graduating kids and how it's run. You're right. We should then go into the CSUs and see how they're being run and how they're graduating kids and maybe you know investigate the pipelines between the CSU and the UC. But then Leah, Jonathan, we probably go have to go look at the community colleges as well. And now we're getting into two very uncomfortable topics. Number one, the question of who should go to college. Um, there's a sentiment uh, especially on the left side of the aisle that everybody should go to college and either college should be free or you don't pay your loans, but by goodness, everyone should get a college education. There's an argument on the right side of the aisle that, you know, college is not meant for everybody. And that's not a snobbish approach. It's just, if you see yourself doing you know a form of labor, maybe two to four years in the college system is not going to really work for you. So maybe find a way to send people to more vocational jobs. Now then, Lee and Jonathan, we're getting into the question about the K through 12 system of preparing people for college and what avenues there, which takes us back to charter schools and so forth. So I guess we have discovered a Gordian knot, haven't we? Yeah, it, you know, it truly is. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of reforms, uh, a lot of low-hanging fruit um, that I think from a political point of view, I think an astute politician, including an astute Democratic po politician, um, you know, could show some leadership and could begin to make changes. But um you know, Bill, there's a sense in which um, I don't know, Bill. I just I don't see any any. I don't I, I don't I don't. Do you see anybody on the within the Democratic Party who's willing to take that step? Um, you know that you know you know more you know more about those folks than I do. No, the urge would be first of all to make community colleges free for everybody. Um, the urge would be to try to make UC free for everybody, or at least forgive their loans. There is really just no kind of real politique look at this. And by that, I mean just assessing whether or not everybody who graduates from high school should go to college, trying to find an alternate pad. So no, it's not there. So I think you're probably going to be looking for a more reform-minded governor in a red state, perhaps go down this road. Yeah. Gentlemen, let's stay on the education front and the UC system. Uh, the University of California uh, Board of Regents last month have put off a decision till uh, mid-December to bless or block UCLA's move from the Pac-12 conference to the Big Ten conference in 2024, um, along with their uh, that, that UCLA would follow their private crosstown rival, the University of Southern California. Under the Big Ten contract, UCLA would receive $60 to $70 million in revenues per year. But last month, the Pac-12 tried to sweeten their approach, um, offering $42 million to $47 million per school. Uh, UCLA would be given some more money um, once USC leaves the Pac-12. Also, the Pac-12 would buy out, uh, potentially buy out UCLA's broken agreement with the Big Ten, which accounts to about 15 
amounts to about 15 million. Uh, Bill, uh, will Governor Newsom get involved uh, to try to persuade UCLA to stay in the Pac-12? Uh, I'd be surprised here if he does not get involved in this regard. He's already been very vocal about it before the election. He was uh, very, uh, very up in arms about the idea of uh, both Los Angeles schools going uh, to the Midwestern Conference, but especially UCLA because of the effect it does have on on Berkeley and the rest of the UC system and ultimately the Pac-12 Conference. Uh, now, he is a, a member of the California Board of Regents. He gets to appoint regents, by the way, um, but he doesn't necessarily run the board in terms of being the, the dictator or president of it. He sits there like a Everyone else gets a vote, but he can drive the conversation. But here's kind of the question, Lee. I had a little fun thinking about this. So it seems to me the obvious solution is that the uh, the regions will get together and they'll suggest that when the Pac-12 uh, does its TV contract that Jonathan mentioned, that it carve out just a larger slice of the pie for UCLA, uh, an acknowledgement of keeping them there, but also acknowledging that they will now be the only Los Angeles school in the conference. And that is a huge necessary thing. If you're going to in any way get TV revenue, you have to have a Los Angeles market. Here's the question, Lee. We live on the West Coast and we live in this bastion of democratic socialism. How democratic socialist is it to be giving more money to one school than others? So much uh, so much for uh, equality. Um, you know, Bill, the, in my opinion, the PAC-12 uh, has been um, has has not been managed well for a number of years. Um you know, I mean, for people listening, let me ask those, let me ask listeners. I mean, do you get the PAC-12 network? Um the the Pac-12 network was marketed to all the providers, and they asked such a high price that it didn't get picked up. Uh, so DirecTV, for example, lots of subscribers um, did not pick up the Pac-12 network. Um, you know, viewership in the Pac-12 network um, is is tiny. It is a small fraction, probably a quarter of what was promised. The Pac-12 the Pac commissioner was fired. Um, he was actually a tennis impresario. He really had he had, he had no background in in, uh, in college athletics. And I thought I thought it was probably a good decision to to fire him. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe just maybe the Pac-12 schools will realize that they need someone who is experienced in college athletics. Um, so who did they hire? They hired, yeah, they hired a Vegas marketing guy as the new commissioner. And, um, you know, a couple of months after he, after he takes the job, uh, SC and UCLA announced they're going to be leaving for the, uh, the big 10. Um, so this is, this is really, uh, uh, I mean, this is a, this is <clears throat> a perfect storm for the PAC 12 right now, losing their two cash cows. And uh, and then speaking of mismanagement, um, my my university UCLA managed to to uh, to ring up a one hundred plus bill uh, one hundred plus million dollar deficit in athletics over the last three fiscal years. Um, that they they have not managed that well. So they viewed going to the Big Ten as a way to address this enormous deficit. Um, yeah, they did. I suspect. Yeah, they did, Lee. I think I'm, so, I'm sorry to cut you off. I think there's a California moment here for Governor Newsom if he wants to play it. And we can get, you know, we can bog down to the monetary side of this and uh, the, the $100 million deficit at UCLA is shocking. Uh, but I think there's a chance for here for Newsom to make a statement and that basically that UCLA, like Stanford and Berkeley and other schools, does embody the California approach to college athletics and that, yes, it strives to have a competitive football team. Yes, it strives to have a competitive basketball team and a baseball team. But where UCLA and Stanford and other West Coast schools really make their bones is in Olympic sports, uh, depth of their program 
program. Stanford almost every year wins the overall program because it has just a laundry list of somewhat exotic sports that aren't money makers, but you find in the Olympics. And that's one of the big draws of bringing elite athletes here. You can excel in our swimming program or our boating program or what have you. Um, to go into the Big Ten Conference for UCLA seriously compromises the ability of those Olympic athletes who not just are participating in a harsh environment. It's not good, easy travel for them and so forth. So it's a chance, Lee and Jonah, for Newsom to kind of embrace the California way of life because just anecdotally, you go to football games at Stanford, for example, to UCLA, there's always a controversy about the starting time. And if it's an early starting time, parents scream loud because their kids invariably in the fall, they're at swim meets or they're in soccer games or lacrosse or whatever the fall sport is, right? Now, that's very much the California way. So I'd like to see Newsom go to the meeting and stand up for that. But I apologize, Lee. I cut you off in mid-sentence. No, 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 Bill. No worries. No worries. Um, no, I appreciate those sentiments. Um, and, you know, another... Uh, and you, have, you have a son living through that, actually. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, a- a- absolutely. And, you know, from the standpoint of the revenue sports, um, you know, that's where the Pac-12 has, uh, has really not delivered. So as you point out, on the one hand, the non-revenue sports are remarkable: swimming, water polo, tennis, golf. Um, yeah, all of those, uh, all of those, you know, being Olympic sports. And you know, you look at the number of NCAA championships. Stanford has a bunch. UCLA has a bunch. Um, and when you look at the, uh, you know, when people are, when you know, when when athletes are thinking about, okay, well, you're a four-star or five-star athlete. You're being recruited by UCLA, SC, Stanford, and they're thinking, okay, well. I go to the Pac-12 and I'm playing football and a lot of those Pac-12 games, the kickoff or the tip-off is at 7.30 at night and that's 10.30 East Coast time. That's 9.30 Central time. You've got nobody east of the Rockies watching those, watching those games. Um, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be a tough one. I, I mean, if I was a betting man, I would suspect UCLA will still go and uh, there'll be a price to pay price to be paid for that um uh but uh yeah that, that's my guess uh, although i'm not particularly confident about that guess well december 14th is the uh, day of the meeting yeah bill your column this week uh for california on your mind centers on the issue of homelessness you explain um how san jose elected an outsider the city of san jose matt mahon as their mayor uh, meanwhile los angeles elected an insider Insider Karen Bass over uh, billionaire Rick Caruso, uh, both Mahan and Bass are Democrats. Uh, they both pledged to do something about the homelessness crisis. However, Mahan said he wants he wants more housing construction. Uh, that seems like a continuation of the failed housing first policy and doesn't really illustrate any out of the box thinking. Uh, Bill, what do you think? Yeah, it was uh, interesting in that uh, these were two mayoral contests, Lee and Jonathan, in which uh, two Democrats faced off. And uh, you had the same dynamic in in both Los Angeles and uh, San Jose, Uh, a man versus a woman. The woman was the established Democrat. The man fashioned himself as an outsider, beat Rick Caruso, the businessman in Los Angeles, or Matt Mahan, who was actually on the city council, I believe, but was only a first-termer. So he kind of fashioned himself as kind of a young, hip, kind of tech bro kind of guy. And he got elected and bastard. So you're right. Mahan's approach is to do housing. Uh, which sounds very familiar. It's an, and Lee can address this given Los Angeles's kind of comedic episodes with trying to create housing for the homeless. Uh, it's Bass who worries me in this regard. She, uh, first of all, said she declared a state of emergency when she takes office, which is on December the 12th. And the second she told reporters in her exact words that she wants to, quote, hit the ground running 
So here's what concerns me. If you go back to 2003, December 2003, and a very cocky mayor-elect Gavin Newsom talking to reporters about all he wants to do for San Francisco, and what does he say? He wants to, quote, hit the ground running when it comes to homelessness. And Newsom promptly promised that he would end uh, chronic homelessness in San Francisco in 10 years. And here we are, you know, you know, t- nearly 20 years later, and obviously that's not happening. And now he's trying to solve it at a statewide level. So I just worry about these two mayors trying to solve homelessness when, frankly, Neither one uh, has very novel ideas. Lee, Lee, what do you think? Um, Bill, uh, you know, what's the old saying? There's nothing there's nothing for certain except death and taxes. And <laughs> I'll just add to that, you know, uh, homelessness in cities such as L.A. and San Jose and San Francisco. There's the, the sad state of affairs is that um, there's essentially kind of a never-ending supply of the homeless um, in these cities. Um, it's incredibly expensive to build housing. Um, you know, so I always call it, you know, I, I put the, you know, the word affordable housing is in quotes because it's costing over a million dollars in San Francisco right now to renovate, just to renovate a one-bedroom apartment. Um, so you might, you know, you might be asking, well, you know, are those solid gold faucets in, in, in the uh, in the bathroom? I mean, how how can you possibly spend over a million dollars to to you know to to renovate uh, a one bedroom apartment um, in Los Angeles? Is costing now uh, somewhere between the you know, the latest numbers I've seen are around eight hundred and fifty thousand between eight and hundred fifty thousand per unit. Um, it's just it's silly. It's absolutely silly. Right, San Francisco. Um, Taking into account the current year's fiscal budget will have spent over, I think, believe $4.2 billion on homelessness in the last four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, I mean, you look at these numbers and it just makes absolutely no fiscal sense. The problem continues to get worse. Um, the problem really is one you know, in terms of chronic homelessness is really an issue of substance abuse and mental health, mental health issues, and in some cases, physical health issues. And, you know, putting up a beautiful four-story apartment building with lots of, that that looks absolutely stunning, which is what they're doing in San Jose and spending an awful lot of money doing it, that is not going to solve the problem. Um, I don't, uh, I think Karen Bass has been around politics, LA politics, for an awful long time. I would have loved to have seen I would have loved to have seen a program where she, where she stated, we've tried X, Y, and Z. It's not working. We've got to think outside the box and here's what we're going to do. And here's why I think it's going to work. And here's why I've got buy-in from a number of, from a number of groups. And we're going to make this happen and we're going to reduce construction costs. And we're going to, in particular, provide mental health treatment and substance abuse treatment. And we're going to have a lot of the budget going towards that. We're going to get these people off the streets. And we're not, we're not seeing any of that. Um, so John, sadly, we're going to. Yeah, so John Cochran, uh, he's a, like Lee, he's a Hoover Senior Fellow and Economist. He writes an excellent blog called The Grumpy Economist. And the other day, Lee and Jonathan, he did what he called homeless math. And here's what he did. He figured California is more than 116,000 residents sleeping on the street any given night. Uh, he then writes that California has dedicated more than $15 billion toward the issue since the start of the pandemic. And then what John did was he took $15 billion, he divided by 116000 and Lee and Jonathan, what he came up with is $129,310.34 per homeless individual that the state has spent in just the last couple of years. Uh, and then Lee, you're right, $873,000 is the last price I saw for building a new housing unit in Los Angeles. But 
gentlemen, here's what I'm worried about. It's who's kind of in charge of this problem right now. Uh, we saw this very curious drama play out in uh, Sacramento recently where Governor Newsom went before the cameras and he announced that he was going to pull uh, aid to uh, counties for their homeless programs. And what he lashed out against was he said, these programs are just not suitably creative to my liking. They have to try harder before they get any money. Uh, it was pointed out that, gee, the Newsom administration actually works a lot of these counties on their homeless programs. So, you know, kind of an odd time to be surprised by this. And not long after he announced he was pulling the money back, he announced he had actually fully restored. I think we're talking about $2 billion. I expect Lee and Jonathan, this will be part of the governor's state of the state address next year. He talks about homelessness, but Lee, what's he going to talk about that he hasn't talked about before? Um, Bill, Ga Gavin is great. Gavin is great at press conferences. And as we noted, as you noted before, creating task forces and action committees. When Newsom was elected in 2018, his primary campaign promise was implementing, quote, a Marshall Plan, uh, unquote, for housing. Um, and that hasn't come close to happening. We're about 80% below his, his targets. Um, and, you know, if, if you know, voters should choose to hold him accountable. And if I say, here's what I promise, and I, I only deliver 20% of, of what I promise, uh, people, you know, my constituents should be really angry with me and, and ask me a lot of tough questions. That doesn't happen here. So I think Gavin will continue to talk about, well, here's what we've done and we've got a task force for this. And he'll talk about, uh, he'll talk about the bill that makes it uh, somewhat easier to take a person off the streets and put them into care, even if it's involuntary. But it doesn't go, uh, it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna solve the problem. Um, you know, certainly it's not gonna get close to that. Um, you know, Bill, ironically, um, you know, if you are a person with low income, uh, but you would like nothing more in life than to live in San Francisco and hopefully have a view, uh, hopefully have a view from about a four story apartment building. Um, and there's absolutely no way you could afford that $2 million property. You know, the homeless program in San Francisco has essentially become like the lottery. Move to San Francisco, live in one of those empty units that's right now being offered up uh, on a temporary basis, and then you know wait and you know and wait until your ticket gets punched and then you're put into a remarkably subsidized unit. Um, that's the way. That's the way for anyone who wants to live in San Francisco and doesn't have the means to do it. And there's not one person within within Democratic Party leadership who is asking themselves we don't have enough money to house everyone who wants to live in San Francisco or San Jose or West Los Angeles or San Diego. There are millions of people who would love to live in those locations. They cannot afford it. We simply can't provide the means for everyone who wants to live in San Francisco and these other West Coast beautiful, you know, beautiful communities on the Pacific Ocean. We can't house everybody that wants to be there. But that has to be part of the conversation. It's a simple economics problem that's never, that's never ever discussed. Well, I would look for something in his uh, speech uh, early next year for this simple reason. If he does want to run for president, he has to understand that the pushback against his candidacy from within Democratic circles, Republican circles, it's very simple. Someone's going to come out to California with a camera and just start filming homeless encampments. And why? It's because it's a scene of just shocking squalor. And secondly, it's not what comes to mind of sunshine and, you know, beaches and pretty women in bikinis in Los Angeles. It's just the opposite. So there you are for Governor Newsom. He has to show something in 2023. And I'm just not sure if he's up to it. 
Yeah, and, and Bill, you know, there's a um, there's a YouTube clip. Uh, I believe it was a video film by Michael Schellenberger. Yes, uh, who wrote the book San Francisco, and um, and it's about a one minute uh, video clip with uh, an end stage addict. Um, you know, almost a um, almost a caricature of what you might think about it, what who that person is. And the video in that video, he says, San Francisco practically pays you to be homeless between all the subsidies I get and the walking around cash. Uh, I'm able to watch Netflix on my phone. I can do whatever I want. Um, and I supplement my monthly income by teaching young kids how to take fentanyl and not kill themselves doing it. And I think that video, that video clip the Schellenberger produced has got something like, and I don't know, millions and millions of views. <laughs> That one's going to be out there, and Newsom has the maybe the infamy now of being former mayor of San Francisco. So um, he needs he needs to make some progress on this if he wants, in my opinion, if he wants to be looking nationally from a political point of view. No question, Jim. Let's uh, let's address another uh, challenge of the state, and that's energy. On Tuesday, the California Energy Commission convened to discuss the high price of gasoline in the state. Uh, the state's five major oil refiners, Chevron, Valero, Phillips 66, uh, PPF uh, Energy, and Marathon, all refused to participate, uh, reported Sacramento's KRCA, citing the need to protect private business information from competitors. Uh, California pays $2.60 per gallon, more than the average of the rest of the country. Uh, the commission hearing was intended to investigate this spike and brushes up against a windfall profits tax that Governor Newsom is proposing. Uh, Lee, what accounts for the price hike and is it heavy really regulation taxes compared to the rest of the country and the windfall tax um will it help make up for the projected 25 billion dollar deficit that uh, bill addressed earlier for next year's budget despite this year's record uh surplus this year's record surpluses yeah jonathan so the answers to your question are <laughs> yes Taxes, regulations, a lot of um, unfriendly business environment, uh, business environment aspects in California are driving the large gap, the large and growing gap between California gas prices and the rest of the country. No, an excess profits tax is not the solution to this. Um, you know, California is just it's not a friendly play, place for producing fossil fuels. And what we are seeing um, is just really simple economics. And it is just, um, it, it is a remarkable coincidence, in my opinion, of um, incompetent regulators at the California Energy Commission and political grandstanding, um, you know, including the governor, and a complete lack of understanding of how, of how supply and demand works. Um, it's really pretty straightforward. You know, ten, 10 years ago, California gas prices were about 30 cents a gallon higher than the rest of the country, uh, that has skyrocketed. And when you look at the history of this, you can see why. And in 2013, a cap and trade program was implemented, which required refiners to reduce their CO2 emissions or buy credits. So credits, uh, so buying these cap and trade credits adds probably about 30 or 40 cents to a gallon of gas. In 2015, uh, the California Air Resources Board added a low carbon fuel standard, which meant that carbon, hydrocarbon emissions and other carbon emissions had to be reduced. That made California gasoline even more of a one-off. The type of gasoline that's used in California is, is not used in other states. Um, we have been losing refinery capacity. Um, right. 
it's shocking, actually. I mean, 40 years ago, um, refinery capacity was nearly 50% higher than it is today. When California had, you know, five or six million fewer people, it is almost impossible now to build a refinery. And Jonathan, at the end of the day, um, it's remarkable that regulators and politicians say, "Well, why is it? Why is gasoline prices so expensive?" They've essentially given a death sentence to right. oil companies in the state. They have said, in you know, less than twelve, less than. Um, in roughly 12 years, you will no longer exist in California when we have all electric vehicles. So, Kel surprise. <laughs> These companies are operating in this, you know, in, in a hostile environment, a high-risk environment. They are no longer investing in producing in 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 making additional refineries. I mean, who, who what rational company would would invest in a state where you where you're going to be regulated out of existence, literally regulated out of existence by 2035? Um, so, so so Lee, in the Newsonium view of the world, there are evil oil barons out there who are conspiring against California. Uh, my question to the governor would be. Why would they just pick on California if you can make a ton of money by jacking up gasoline to six dollars on purposes? He would claim. Why aren't they doing it in Texas? Why aren't they doing it in Florida and New York and Illinois and so forth? Why just California? I think the answer is because California has all the things you mentioned in terms of bag regulation and re- lack of refinery capacity and so forth. What we're headed for here in 2023 is a really delicious exercise in semantics because why windfall profit tax T A X? That's a bad word in Sacramento circles because any new tax requires a two-thirds vote of the legislature, and there are Democratic lawmakers who do not want to vote for this tax. So mark my words, this windfall profit tax is going to become some sort of windfall profit fee, which requires only a majority vote. So that's thought number one. But here's thought number two, Lee and Jonathan. Here I decided to get a little evil. Uh, the idea of $6 a gallon gas uh, outrage. Let's try, let's try a different kind of outrage. I was looking at wine prices the other day, and I stumbled across a bottle of Plump Jack wine, Plump Jack being the, the operation that Governor Newsom ran as a businessman. Uh, this particular bottle of Plump Jack retails for $160 a bottle at 750 milliliters. Uh, that's about one-fifth of the gallon. So what's $160 times five? That's $800 a gallon for wine in California. Uh, and I don't know a lot about the wine industry, but I think you're talking about putting, you know, you're talking about uh, growing grapes on a vineyard, which requires probably rather inexpensive labor. Buying uh, glass bottles can't be that expensive. I have a feeling there's a lot of profit involved in $800 per gallon wine. So, Lee and Jonathan, where is the wine windfall profit tax? <laughs> yeah, Bill, I agree. Where is that tax on? Um, does he does he, is he still part of, of Plump Jack? Yeah, it's in a blind trust right now. But the point is, uh, there are a lot of things in life that are expensive. Uh, anybody who just experienced Cyber Monday and uh, Black Friday, all of a sudden, lo and behold, companies will suddenly sell you stuff at half the price, and they're still making a profit. I'm not defending the oil industry here. I'm just saying that you know this is kind of selective outrage because the governor thinks that oil companies are good fodder. But if you want to have some fun, let's look at the price of a bottle of wine. <laughs> Yeah, and and Bill, you know the um, the simplest lesson from economics is that if if profits are particularly high, if they are, that's a signal for producers to provide more of what people want. 
Right. You know, so if it's profitable to sell something, they're going to produce more of it and the price will come down and people will be able to buy a lot more gas, buy, buy more gasoline. Um, you know, that's not happening because, again, we're not, you know, the state is not going to, uh, sorry, I got a dog barking in the background. That's the okay. state is not going to allow, the state's not going to have any, uh, there's not a future for fossil fuel powered automobiles in this state in a few years. Um so very ironically, the state has regulated away any type of increased supply response. Um, this is a, uh, and this is a crisis for low and middle income families who, who have to drive a lot. And particularly in businesses such as, um, you know, landscaping, where you've got, uh, you know, relatively low margins and you've got vehicles that are not, you know, they're not electric powered, they're not getting particularly good, good gas mileage. Um, so this is a regulatory issue that the state has created, and um, and good on for those for those for those companies who refuse to come to this meeting. Um, and Bill, you know, it's uh, I think I think would, would, if they had gone to this meeting, I think it probably would have run afoul of the country's antitrust <laughs> antitrust laws. Um, you say, you know that that they, they, they it, it could have been it could have been viewed as uh, as an opportunity for collusion. But, um, you know, shame on the California Energy Commission and Newsom for making this just pure political grandstanding and shame on the commission for not understanding the simple economics of what they are doing and how they are regulating away an industry that provides a product that the state cannot do without. So at some level, we should be <laughs> at some level, you know, the. Their lack of information, lack of understanding about this um, is shocking. Californians really deserve much better. Than yeah. So what, my question, Lee. So what this is, what this does tie into, Lee, is the question of 2023 of assuming there will be a very large deficit to to uh, paper over. Where does the hunt for revenue go? Um, in other words, who does the state government just pick up and hold up by the ankles and shake down for more money? Uh, oil companies would seem a very obvious target. Uh, I would note, though, there was a ballot measure last November to uh, add more taxes to the wealthy. This got into very complicated politics. We talked about in a previous podcast about Lyft and so forth. But uh, will they try to tax the rich? They've discussed this uh, time and time and again, but it hasn't gone anywhere. Maybe go after the wealthy again. Uh, maybe find some other industries. You can always go raise people's you know vehicle license fees and and driver's licenses and so forth, voting fees. But you know it's kind of nickel and dime stuff. But Lee, if you're facing a very large deficit, how is the state going to make it up in terms of revenue? Where where do you think they would go hunting? Yeah, well, Bill, they're going to have to face the uh, the unpleasant reality that they are hitting they are hitting high ability to pay people about as much as they can. Um, you know, our colleague Josh Rao at Hoover, um, you know, has done some really really interesting research that estimates, yeah, you know, how much additional revenue that the state has received from the very top taxpayers in response to the the thirteen point three percent increase in the in the in the personal personal marginal tax rate, and um, and the change in tax revenue, what he's estimating is um, is tiny compared to what the uh, legislative analyst office. Uh, had predicted and what was being advertised to um, to voters. So I think they're going to have to confront the the very unpleasant reality that that they are going to have to start taxing less price sensitive uh, tax bases, which means they're going to have to start taxing people who are not at the very top. Um, I don't know exactly how they're going to do that, but 
They tried to, uh, you know, they tried to break Prop 13 with businesses a couple of years ago. That didn't work. Mm -hmm. They weren't able to raise taxes um, with, uh, you know, with your re with the with the recent proposal that we talked about before. That was that was uh, the lift essentially essentially killed. Um, so they're going to have to start doing. They're going to have to start looking at from other, from for some other sources, and that's the. Um, the millions and millions of people um, who were not making six figures. Sadly, that's what they're going to have to start doing if they want to get more revenue. Of course, they can always not send some of us their refund checks that they promised. I, I don't know about you, Lee, but I was anticipating about a two hundred dollar check in the mail hasn't shown up. Maybe maybe on somebody maybe I made somebody's list. I don't know. <laughs> Bill, uh, yeah, I'm still waiting. <laughs> well, it was only about five months ago they decided this. So what's the hurry? Yeah. You know, Bill, just one last thing on the uh, on the price of gas. Um, we I think I believe we pay I believe in our state we pay, I think, close to 75 cents a gallon in state taxes on gasoline. Um, Texas, you mentioned Texas. Texas is just 20 cents a right. gallon. And um, I don't know, Bill, uh, you live in uh, you live in Palo Alto. I live in Santa Barbara. Um there's a lot of roads that I drive on that don't look like they're being cared for nearly as much as they should be at 73 cents per gallon in state taxes. Right. So, Lee, for every gallon of gas in California, uh, California to pay 54 cents in a state excise tax, among the highest in the nation, 18.4 cents in federal excise tax, 23 cents for California's cap and trade program to lower greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. yeah so there's there's over a dollar there's over a dollar gallon right there. Well, again, gentlemen, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Lee and Jonathan. Thanks, fellas. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen CA. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavardi saying in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.